And so, the culprit is revealed, and it wasn't anyone at all. Does that make a fair puzzle? We also have Chrissy Neen here to see how you can construct a villain that might not even be real. You're on Death of the Reader. You're listening to To A CR on 107.3. This is Flex and Herds bringing you Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. We're on the third and final episode talking about three taps by Ronald Knox. The killer's been revealed and we're going to talk about them. Oh, I, I think you mean, Herds, we're going to talk about how right I was. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, you're not wrong. I wasn't wrong. I was not wrong in the slightest. Mm, you were pretty on the money, which is, you know, maybe we'll see how you do in the future. But that's right. You get one victory up on this. You get one point. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. We're keeping score, are we? I guess one so. One to me. One, one to, to you. Me. You get one flex buck. I will say, though, I, I do have to concede, I wasn't a big fan of Pulteney for a lot of the story. What? But, oh my goodness, did he carry it through to the finish line. He is actually <laughs> my favorite character. Except was, maybe Angela. <laughs> I mean, Jury's still out on that one. Yeah, it's it's definitely a close call on, on best performance between mm. and, Angela and Pulteney, but yeah. Pulteney... In the final section, which we're talking about today, which is from chapters 18 to the end. Yeah. My goodness, what a show. Yeah, he, he proves himself to be instrumental to the solve of the mystery, but also he's just a really enthusiastic guy. I kind of love him. He certainly delivers himself well to the like, absurdist comedy that's going on. Like He's just so excited to be there and to solve crimes. Uh, and he even has a little bit where he talks about... Man, if only I'd been... If only I'd known that I was being suspected. Why, to tell the truth, I've been shadowing Mr. Pulteney. I must apologize, Mr. Pulteney, but I felt bound to be careful. I've had you under close observation all this week, and it was only as I stood behind the door, watching your investigations into that car, that I became perfectly convinced of your innocence. What? More suspicion? This is indeed a day. Why, if I had had the least conception that you were watching me, Mr. Leyland, I would have led you a rare dance. My movements, I promise you, should have been full of mystery. I should have gone out every night with a scowl and a dark lantern. I am overwhelmed. It's it's one of the best moments in the whole book where yeah. he's just like, what do you mean? I could have been playing this up so much more. Yeah. I could have had so much more fun with this literal game of ours, he says, as he puts away his fishing hook. <laughs> his plans, you know, laid to ruin, which I should say, I'm going to formally apologize to Pulteney for trying to put him in the role of the killer because clearly he's just a stand-up guy trying to get a bit of fishing done. I mean, I feel like he would have enjoyed knowing that you suspected him that much, right? <laughs> Of course, you you should have told him is the problem. This is the thing. Unfortunately, we don't quite have the technology to be able to tell someone in a murder mystery when you suspect them. We're getting <laughs> there, though. That's like the next evolution. It is. It is. Mm. The one thing that I really wanted to talk about coming into today, mm, because mm. this is this is the end, right? We've reached sure. the solutions. If anything's unsaid today, it's just not worth talking about. Dubious at best, but <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the way that the solutions are laid out is... Super, super fantastic in this mm. story. It was such an emotional roller coaster going from Leyland's to Mottram's to Breddon's, mm. where I was like, oh, I was so wrong. Oh, I was even more wrong too. Oh my God, I was completely right. <laughs> yeah, this structure, the way that they lay out, like the catching of the killer, or, you know, not catching as the case turns out to be, and then the three different solutions that the novel presents. I think that's really cool. I don't think I've read a murder mystery that does anything quite like that. Uh, and yeah, getting that big hurrah at the end of, actually, I have sold it all by myself. I figured it out. It was all because one of my patient's cards flew underneath the building. <laughs> yeah, it was It it was a little bit of a moment where I was like, you know, maybe some of the audience would feel a bit cheated by this. 
you know, mm. the whole roller coaster of the varying solutions between the yeah. different detectives mm. um, and Mottram himself, especially once we got to Mottram's, because you'd assume that it Mottram would know what was going <laughs> yeah. on, especially when he concluded that he was going to die. Yeah, except that he totally didn't. He and that's, totally did not. That's the fun part, isn't it? That's why Absolutely. we got. That's why we have our story without a moral, because you know Mottram had this whole thing set up. He was going to fake fake a suicide to test the bishop, and then he died anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I was really happy that it did come down to that whole exploration of their morals. It was something that was yeah. brought up in the middle section, and I really liked that the way the story introduced that and then actually continued to use it as a theme right up to the end, For sure. where it was a test of the bishop's morals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although the bishop wasn't really on screen for very much of the book, so there's there's maybe a bit of like question there of whether he really was tested, I suppose. But eh. I think one of the things with a story like a murder mystery, where you're meant to be kind of engaged with what's going on in the puzzle, mm. that's totally okay because then in that circumstance, the person being challenged is you. I suppose so. Like, there's a lot of stories you could read over it and go like, oh yeah, that's the moral lesson they're trying to teach. But because they're trying to get you to engage and solve mm. the puzzle you become the one who those questions are asked to. For sure, for sure. And something else that uh, kind of springs to mind, there's a bit of a strange scene when uh, the characters, are, they're trying to chase Poltney down. They end up in the gorge. And, uh, uh, sorry, Brinkman, he kind of breaks out into a full run. There's this yeah. almost action-like sequence. I, um, I really would love to see the like the film version of that because, yeah. you know, a lot of murder mystery stories, it's very controlled, very calm camera mm. movements as we follow the detective. But, you know, when we get to those moments where suddenly there's an action break, yeah. you just want, like, Paul Greengrass from the Bourne <laughs> series just in there with his shaky cam and yeah, yeah. big punches. Yeah. I mean, I can I can imagine the moment when uh, when Brinky jumps up to grab the envelope and the lightning strikes and there's like the strings playing in the background. It was so over the top. It'd be amazing. Yeah. It'd be an amazing moment. Like, da, 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 da. yeah. <laughs> and I, the other thing I really liked about that is again that was another example of something that could have felt really out of place, but was very neatly executed. We kind of built up this big tension of suspicion and suspicion, suspicion for mm. so long. And then that was our payoff for it. Yeah. And I think that that scene kind of carried that momentum really well and stuck the landing because that's a big yeah. problem with building tension. You got to stick the landing. Sure. Yeah. Well, there was a, it was a really great moment for me reading through when I read through the first time and uh, the, I don't remember who it is, but the man in charge of the garage is like, I hope you don't mind, but during your investigation, I just need to take the car out about 20 minutes before you're expecting that your, you know, your suspect will show up at the garage. I'm going to meet a man. I won't tell you what his name is or what the purpose is. I'm just going to go meet him at the station. Don't worry about it. And they're like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> That's fine. We don't expect the Brinkman will be that person. He's coming to the garage, right? Ugh. Despite the fact he knows he's being followed. It was a great moment to kind of have that revelation of, oh, they're going to get they're yep. gonna in trouble there. Mm-hmm. But it was really good, though. I didn't feel like it was cheated. Um, and in the end, we kind of hope the Brinkman gets away. Yeah. He was just an honest man, just trying to fake a suicide. <laughs> I think the other thing that was particularly fun seeing played out towards the latter section of the book was the relationship between the barmaid and Simmons. I love that. That was like my favorite part. Look, not favorite characters, but one of my favorite things was that the solution to, you know, what's what's happening with the cigarette brand? Why is that just always there? Who is listening in on all my conversations? It was the servants. The servants are listening at the keyhole. And they even have a little joke at the end when they talk about, well, what do we do with the barmaid now? Well, I guess you'll probably get a lot of money from from selling all Mottram stuff. And then we hear the like the squee at the door and the running away of the of the barmaid. It was just a really wholesome kind of 
B-plot, almost. I do enjoy when there's a red herring that kind of leads to a satisfying conclusion rather than just being dropped, because that's definitely one of the easiest ways to make your readers feel cheated in the murder mystery sense. And I think that uh, especially in, like, the way that I enjoy, you know, most novels, especially, you know, murder fiction, I like when there's that element of humanity to it. I really like when we have these characters we can relate to. They're not just, you know, the killer and the accomplice. They're, like, real people And it's their mistakes and it's their wants and desires that kind of get in the way of the mystery. As we addressed earlier on, one of the things with detectives is that as they kind of got further into their own series, it became less of a human thing and more just a, how big of a puzzle can I solve? Mm. And, you know, obviously this is still the start of Breton's series, but having that human element is definitely one of the things that will kind of make or break detective fiction for me. This is really the thing that really holds this novel together, is that the detective has a much less presence than most detective fiction, but this ensemble cast. And it's the first novel, right? This is the first novel that Knox has written with Breton and with these other supporting characters, but he really brings it together in a really great way. He really brings it together? brings it together. I'm just disappointed I didn't think of that. Uh, he really potneys it together. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. It, it kind of will be unfortunate, if anything, going to the next Miles Bread novel and not having this rich cast. Well, you really hope that he can construct a similar strong plethora of characters. Yeah. I mean, that's the question, right, that we'll have to, to check out if we check out the next book or the next couple books, like which characters will make an occurrence, which characters in cameos, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think that the way that he's structured this this group, I could see Paltney coming back and saying, hey, oh, it's so crazy. I'm You went to Brazil to solve a murder mission. Well, I came here for vacation yeah. to go fishing, <laughs> you know? Just the whole cast rocks yeah. up just completely out of context. That would be wearing, fantastic. And they're all wearing Hawaiian T-shirts, and that's oh, that's it. That's all that I want. That's the kind of, that's the kind of story I would love that to have. would be perfect. Poltneft? No, it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Up next on Death of the Reader, we have Chrissy Neen, who is in town for the Sydney Writers' Festival, to talk a little bit about villains, villainous forces, and how to make them say more than what's just on the page. You're listening to Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour, brought to you by 2SER 107.3. We are Flex and Herds, your hosts. Joining us today, we have respected author Chrissy Neen, panelist on the Sydney Writers' Festival and writer of Wintering, about the spooky monster-filled wilds of Tasmania to talk about making monsters. How are you today, Chrissy? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Going very well. I've got Herds here with me. Hi. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) We're very polite for people talking about monsters. Yeah. It's <laughs> the fun of it, isn't it? If you can't sit down and have a cup of tea with your monsters, what are you doing, really? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing we wanted to talk about was uh, was wintering. You know, we understand there's a little bit of mystery involved, which, of course, is our ballpark. Could you tell us a little mm. bit about th- that? Yes. Um, wintering's um, a, a mystery about a woman who's living in the deep south of Tasmania. Uh, she's not a local. She's there doing her PhD. And then um, one day her long-term partner who is a local disappears and she has no idea what's happened to him. His car is found on a a very remote road. The door opens and um, nothing, you know, is heard from him. And as she tries to figure out what happened to him, she discovers that she didn't know everything about him in the first place. 
she had been living with him for eight years, but had no idea that he had a whole lot of other things going on in his life. So I guess my question is, how how do you decide uh, how much information to kind of feed the readers they go along? Because obviously you start off with this, you know, this core mystery of the the were tigers and lost partners. How do you decide how how kind of consistently and how quickly to feed that information to your to your reader? What's that process like? Oh, it, that's the hardest bit of this mm. book. Um, it's <laughs> actually the balance between um, the magic and the science it was the hardest thing to kind of get right in this book and how to kind of, you know, how to drip feed information um, to keep the reader wanting to turn the page and wanting to read on, but also without, without turning off a reader who um, likes the mystery in life. Um, mm. So, you know, the readers of horror genre, but also without turning off the readers who don't like to read um, about the mysteries in life, who like to yeah, everything to be boxed neatly into kind of scientific packages. So I wanted to play this line where, depending on what type of a reader you are, um, you are telling a different story to yourself in your head. So um, the idea that it starts very much rooted in reality um, and in the idea that this woman um, is just missing her partner and she's going on a, a bit of a hunt to ask locals if they know anything about about him and this secret life she discovers. Um, and then this kind of the elements of mystery are sort of fed in by this group of women, um, which she calls the coven of women. Um, so the coven kind of feed these these ideas and that happens sort of slowly as, as the book um, emerges. So when you sit down and write antagonists like this, you know, they're kind of compelling and underhanded and not really as out in the open as the, you know, face value of the story is, how do you comp- like keep those characters compelling and kind of what's your process for building those villains while they're more or less behind the scenes? It has to um it has to hook me in. I think that really um my process is is a little bit haphazard in that I I have to um want to um, learn about them as a as a writer, uh, and so for me, it's about um, keeping the story going for me in my head. So I was never really exactly sure where this was going to end as I was writing, and um, you know, if I got bored of a particular um, line of inquiry, then the audience is definitely going to get bored. So for me, it was about keeping the ideas alive in my head, um, making sure that. Um, there was the possibility that my antagonist could be, you know, a good guy um, at any point. You know, he might turn out to be um, not such a beast as we're kind of um, led to believe. So that kind of, the balance, you know, between making him scary but also keeping the idea that maybe he's not so scary alive um, was was the trick that I was playing um, with my own head, I suppose. So yeah, it was it was quite. I'm not one of those people who sits down and you know makes spreadsheets and charts and um, you know tries to um, make everything scientific. I suppose you know I'm not one of those people who likes to kind of um, block everything out before I start. And I really have so much respect for writers who do that. Um, but for me, I've got a very short attention span, and so I need to be engaged. I need to sit down every day at my desk and not know exactly where the book is going to go. It needs to engage me. So that's my process, really. Yeah, that's always such a fascinating topic when it comes to mystery in particular, the idea of whether the author discovered it along with the audience, more or less, or whether they planned it out all ahead. And I think that there's definitely a brilliant organic nature that comes from the author discovering what they're writing as they do so. 
Yeah, it's actually it, the only way that I can work is is that kind of organic way. I've tried um, to plot things out, and I just get too bored, uh, and it feels too prescriptive when I'm writing it. It feels like I'm just colouring by numbers. So um, for me, I have to challenge myself and surprise myself. And with this book in particular, um, it was it was kind of flip flopping right until um, the very final edit. Um, like I kept going back and just teasing out that balance between the supernatural and the scientific and it changed, you know, right up until the very day I delivered it. So it was a really interesting process to kind of um, make sure that I had both those elements evenly balanced and I didn't want a reader to kind of um, feel like I'd come in prescribing the way they needed to read this book. I wanted the reader to be very, very active um, in the, the rolling out of the story and I wanted the book to be a different book depending on who you were as a reader, so that it actually looks different um, depending on your background and your belief system. Yeah, and this novel has a strong focus on, you know, life partners going missing and there's this, this coven of, of witches, it sounds like, that exists sort of forming a community out in the out in the forest, if I'm understanding correctly. Um, how important is it, or I guess, how central to the to the novel are these relationships and really laying out these relationships and making them feel like they're they're real and they existed? Uh, that's really important to me. Like I, I wanted, uh, in a way, I was in that landscape and in that environment, and I was also seeing um, some of the local people who were incredibly um, capable. You know, there was a there was a woman um, living right down in the southernmost part of Tasmania who was still fishing in her nineties, and you know, I was putting out the boat with my dad down there while I was down there, and it's quite it's pretty full on work. And when I heard about this woman who was you know, been living there all her life without power, without town water, you know, just a generator and, um, you know, tanks. And here she is in her 90s still fishing and um, feeding herself. It, it gave me a real sense of what I was lacking and what the city people were kind of lacking um, compared to the local people. And um, it gave me this sense of the different strengths that the different women had. So these, And I wanted to kind of look at that relationship between a woman who has all this kind of intellectual strength, you know, she has her strength. She's also, um, my, my main character, Jessica, is also, she, you know, she grew up in this strange um, environment. So when she kind of encounters these women who've been living on the land and off the land for so long, she kind of sees that this could be a future for herself too. So I really wanted to show that um, the relationships between her and the other women in the town particularly, and also her relationship to the other men in town, because, you know, there are some some guys who just um, are not um, particularly work, I suppose, in that area and, and not particular feminists in that area and who um, treat her in a particular way. But there are also others in the community who are um, incredibly generous and lovely and understanding and treat her just like another human being. So um, those relationships, I really wanted to um, make sure that they were real and true and living in that place. Um, and actually interacting with the people around me gave me, um, I suppose, the palette for all those characters. Mm. So I suppose I wanted to ask, you are part of the, the Making Monsters panel. I wanted to know if you have one piece of advice or observation maybe uh, when it comes to making a villain relevant and compelling uh, and not just a moustache-twirling schema. Yeah. Well, I think that um, firstly I think that the, the thing that I um, – the one piece of advice is that it's all a metaphor. That you know, I think horror um, is always 
a metaphor for something in the real world. So if you think about that and you think about what a particular kind of monster, what kind of fear um, does that monster evoke, it's always a metaphor for something in your real life that you can be afraid of. So in this book, the metaphor is the monstrousness within um, a man who keeps a woman in a domestic violence situation. So domestic violence is a very big um, theme in this book, but it's also a metaphor for that idea of the tiger and the violence that can be, um, you know, uh, that kind of mystical violence that can happen with the monster. So I, I think just keeping your head it can be a metaphor, even if you have a monster that is a real-life, you know, um, fanged beast. Um, what is that a metaphor for? What is the fear of that? And how does that translate into the real world? That's my advice. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Chrissy. It was lovely to speak to you. That was so much fun. Thank you very much. You're listening to Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour on 2SER 107.3. I'm Flex. I'm Hertz. And that was Chrissy Neen teaching us how a good monster is made. Check out her novel The Wintering for a spooky good time. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER 107.3, your Murder Mystery World Tour. Thank you to the Mita family for our lovely theme music. We haven't shouted them out yet, but they kindly provided that to us, and it's absolutely wonderful. Right now on Death of the Reader is normally when we discuss what we think is going to happen, what we think the solution to the puzzle is. Normally one of us is blind. Normally the other can see all. But this time, we both see all because we've reached the end of the three taps. It's true. It's kind of sad, really, as much as I enjoyed our back and forth. Me arguing for the old man with the fishing hooks. You arguing for the man with the keys and the money and the motivation and (laughs) everything that made sense. Everything that made sense. (laughs) I I do have to ask you, Herds, did Mm. you feel at any point like you were going to be able to misdirect me or did you reckon I got it? I mean, I've I've known you long enough to know that you're a pretty uh, a pretty sharp eye for these sorts of things. Alrighty, alrighty. There was definitely a chance, uh, mainly to do with you know Poltney pointing things out. That's one yeah. of the things that stood out to me when I was reading it. How like he keeps saying, "Oh, this 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 clue, like there's the flies for fishing, but they're not the right ones." Like uh, he's the person who is always pointing out clues, so he could very easily be you know misdirecting the reader. But clearly he's just being a little bit yeah. of his own. I isn't? think the thing that was very interesting to me about that scene in particular was that when he points out the flyers for fishing, mm. it's also mentioned that, like, oh, you know, every man in his heart believes he could be a good detective. Yeah. And even though I know that not to be true, I, I still I still just have to try my best. Well, that's that's why when I was pitching the second episode, when I was trying to, like, misdirect you, I said, oh, well, maybe... You know, maybe Brinkman is trying to catch Poltney, but it was the other way around, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's kind of one of the definite strong suits of this story mm. is that our main two suspects are both kind of going after each other in one way or another. And it's those kind of parallels that I think made this puzzle very fair. The way that even the kind of logical correlations between certain character aspects reflected how you could read the final solution. 
Sure. Like, especially when we got to the first meeting of the bishop and the bishop saying that, like, oh, you know, half-jokingly he was saying that he was going to donate all of his money to the church. Mm. And, you know, sometimes when you say things half-jokingly, it's to gauge someone's reaction, right? For sure, for sure. And that ended up being what Mottram's motivation yeah. was. He had this whole big test that he was trying to put the bishop through, even though it didn't quite go according to plan. It still ended up testing him in the end anyway. Yeah, so I do think that if we were to say, is this a fair story? 100% stamp of approval. Sure. I would contest a couple points. I okay, would contest okay, a let's couple hear things where the clues are not quite as laid out as they should be, particularly when it comes to the three taps themselves. We know that the taps are important because it's the name of the novel. We know that the gas killed Mottram. But the like description of the taps and how they're laid out is not... I don't know if it's just that it's not it's not laid out well or it's just incredibly boring to read, but it did not occur to me for a second that you could, for example, turn off a tap without leaving your fingerprint because it was just, you know, it's just whatever. We don't care about leaving fingerprints on taps in a murder mystery, you know? Because that's, uh, like, a big part of that mystery is, you know, how did the cap- tap get turned off if there are no fingerprints? There just weren't any fingerprints is the answer, which is very silly. <laughs> I... Don't necessarily disagree. Thank you. There definitely were moments earlier on where those things were presented. I will completely agree that the description of the taps themselves is just like... (sighs) Yeah, sure. But the thing I will say above all else, though, is I completely agree the taps were overly convoluted, but I also think that that's entirely the point because it lends credibility to the accident. I suppose so. I just don't like it. I don't think it's a particularly clean kind of... Uh, puzzle. When I'm looking for a murder weapon, I'm not looking for like, you know, a, a dart that shoots through the vent and it's, you know, activated by a hair trigger. You're not, you're not looking through a fishing hook through a no, window from I'm a two-story ladder. As much fun as that is to imagine, <laughs> uh, I'm not looking for a trap X. And that's one of uh, Nox's commandments. It is indeed. Uh, no hitherto undiscovered poisons may be used, which is fine nor any appliance which will need a long scientific explanation at the end. You might argue we're kind of pushing we're pushing the limits of that here. I can definitely sympathize with that. Like, yeah. as I said, I don't disagree with the, the fact that this is kind of the least cleanly executed part of the puzzle, mm-hmm. but I, I still don't think that that dissuades my opinion from it being fair. Sure. I don't think you need to understand that, you know... Tap A was turned on, tap mm. B was turned off, tap C was turned on. Yeah. To understand the puzzle, you just need to know the taps were complicated. <laughs> yeah. The, sure. the stiff one only had a print on one side, and the other one was easy to turn on and off. Right? With those three pieces of information, you have 90% of what you need to solve it, sure. and I think that's fine. Sure. I guess that's one of those things with murder mysteries where it's difficult to tell how many clues the the audience member kind of needs to solve it. Clearly, uh, Knox had, like, gotten the idea of this, you know, three taps puzzle uh, before he'd thought about how to present that to the reader. That's the impression I get, at least. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but that does sound fairly plausible. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, if anything, that might be the, like, the spawning point for the story, right? Yeah. You know, you'll typically come into it with an idea and flesh it out from there. So maybe that was the first idea, but we kind of got carried away with these characters, much to the strength of the story, mind you. Um, But then that kind of got left to the wayside a little bit. Which I think is actually fine because this is a murder mystery novel, but its main focus is as a, like, absurdist murder mystery novel. Like, it's still clever, but the main draw, like, when I tell people about this, when I tell you guys about this, this is going to be, this is a funny 
story. You know, this is one that you'll you'll chuckle about on the way home. You know, like it's just so well written and it's just a fun time to read. This isn't you know this great big epic on the nature of man. Uh, it is in fact a story without a moral that we should have a fun time with. Or maybe absurdism is a big piece of commentary on the nature of man. Maybe it is. <laughs> maybe it is. Who am I to judge? I did particularly love uh, the beginning of the final chapter, just Pultney going, "Ah, oh, not another mental perspective." Yeah, yeah. Like you could, you could feel that line came from the heart. Absolutely, that's <laughs> definitely the joke. The joke is on the author. It's it's great. I definitely think this is a good beginner story. I think you could have a really good time with it and just not worry about solving things. You know, give it your best shot because that's how they're designed. But like, I feel like you would be totally fine just giving it a go and then maybe moving on to some of Knox's other novels. Yeah, I think the other thing that particularly stood out to me in that regard was that it's an absurdist story. And we said in the first episode discussing the three taps that Mm. it felt very timeless in the way that it was written. Mm. Um, And I think that that's something that has really lent uh, lent my heart to this story. Um, I had a really good time just enjoying it. Like I basically breezed through it once and then was like, oh, right, I'm meant to be solving this. <laughs> and then had to go back and re- reread the chapters over and over again to get it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think to some extent that that's the way that murder mysteries should be because the rereading of it and the discovering of how the puzzle was laid out before you without you even realizing it mm. is one of the best parts of the genre. And this story does a fantastic job of laying it out in a way that you'll enjoy going back over. And that's what I'm really looking forward to doing. Well, thank you for joining us on Death of the Reader here on 2SER 107.3. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, Flex. What? What novel are we doing next week? Oh, right. <laughs> You're going to tell us that. Next week. It's your turn. It is. Yeah. Next week, Herds, mm-hmm. I challenge you <gasps> to the Floating Admiral by the Detection Club. I accept... You only have to contend with chapters one to four for now, Herds, but it's a tough cookie. Sounds amazing. Let's do it. See you then. 